This is Polar Geopolitics, a podcast analyzing the global and regional implications of rapid environmental change and rising international interest in the Arctic and Antarctica. Hi, this is Eric Bagley in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 42 of the Polar Geopolitics podcast. And in some ways, we're going back to our beginnings, to our very first guest on this podcast. He was uh, featured on episodes one and two, and then also another episode uh, somewhere in the middle. Professor Klaus Dodds, professor of geopolitics at Royal Holloway University of London, an expert on the polar regions. And of course, Klaus, your recent book from last year, Border Wars, The Conflicts That Will Define Our Future, is more current than ever and will certainly be featured in our discussion today. So great to see you again, Klaus. Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate the invitation to come and join you again in terms of the podcast series. Great. And uh, what I think we'll do here is uh, we'll zoom in and out. We'll talk about specific issues to the Arctic with, of course, the invasion uh, as the uh, context, but also zoom out and talk perhaps a little more generally about geopolitics and the shockwaves that this invasion will uh, has already caused and will certainly cause for some time into the future. So perhaps to take a, a piece of the title of your book, Klaus, will this war in Ukraine right there in the heart of the Eurasian landmass really define our future? as the title of that book implies, even though, of course, the book was written uh, before this invasion and before the uh, Russian military buildup. I just want to get some sort of idea of what what the scale of this, how big of a shock this is to the international system. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's a really important opening question because when I when I wrote Border Wars, um, initially, actually, it was, it was due to be published in uh, February, March 2020. And the publishers quite reasonably came back to me and said, well, look, given that we're facing a, um, a set of lockdowns as a consequence of the COVID pandemic, do you think it would be appropriate to add a chapter in terms of how uh, disease and viral infections have implications for how we border and how we lock down and shut and desocialize uh, domestic societies and how that impacts, of course, on the relationship with others? And then the paperback edition of Border Wars came out the day Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And and actually, in the book, I commented upon the cynical use of no-man's lands and disputed territories and the way in which they often get engineered by design, particularly by powerful states, eager to engage in what we call sort of revanchism, So this kind of desire to restore or to recover some kind of past glory or lost territory. And I actually used um, some of the examples that I think speak to the current moment. So eastern Ukraine, for example, Crimea, um, Ossetia, that these, these these are sort of no man's lands or these are sort of contested spaces that actually end up as sort of launch pads or justifications for something uh, bigger, bolder, and ultimately more violent. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that I think Putin is highly geopolitical in the way in which he thinks of Russia. I think he's actually quite czarist in his imagination. And he talked repeatedly about the dissolution of the Soviet Union being a sort of geopolitical disaster So I think sometimes you really should take very seriously what political leaders actually say, because that will often help to guide you in terms of what is to come. 
perhaps it's beyond the scope of this discussion in terms of engaging in, in some sort of psychology of Putin, but do you think he's acting rationally? I mean, you say that he's a geopolitical thinker and this is motivated by geopolitics and maybe some sort of revanchism of bringing back the old Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. Do you think, and this is perhaps a bit speculative, but do you see this as a rational move on his part or some, or driven by perhaps other factors? I think there are probably two elements. I mean, one is I think there is a rational calculation. So, you know, if, if you're Putin, you've seen that you've been able to, for example, annex Crimea in 2014. You've, you've experienced a degree of sanctions on the part of the European Union and the United States and a few others. But you've also cultivated opportunities to develop a strategic relationship with China that actually does have implications uh, for Russia's far north and, and the Arctic. But on the other hand, as well, uh, as Russian commentators have also noted, um, the COVID pandemic has had implications on Putin himself, who, uh, by, by reports, has become very, very fearful and uh, concerned about uh, COVID on a very, very personal level. Hence the meetings with the you know, absurdly large tables that look like they sort of would be come out of a James Bond movie as opposed to anything else. Um, and, and people commenting that, you know, this is a leader who's become increasingly isolated. And one of the things often goes hand in hand with isolated leaderships is they become more paranoid. You know, they begin to sort of see enemies everywhere and anywhere. And I think there's probably a sort of a, a sort of combination of the two. But there's also a kind of narcissism, you know, that, that you know, I am going to be uh, the person who reshapes Russia's historical destiny. You know, I am going to be the person who restores great power status to this country. Um, you know, we've seen it before, of course, in other leaders uh, in very, very recent times, you know, this desire to make countries great again. Now, what, of course, uh, is really very shockingly different is, is this very, very violent uh, invasion of Ukraine that appears to be utterly uh, predisposed towards the destruction of that particular nation state. And perhaps that's one of also the many miscalculations Putin has made, is I think he's fundamentally misunderstood that in the, in the intervening period between the dissolution of the Soviet Union and this invasion of Ukraine, Ukraine itself has developed a very strong sense of itself, a very strong sense of national identity um, that I suspect Putin and others around him have found very, very unsettling. Brings me to a question about history then, Klaus. The Ukrainian conception of their national identity, perhaps recent, past 30 years since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, perhaps predating that as well. I'm not an expert on Ukrainian history per se, but this Russian look uh, outlook on history as looking going back a thousand years that Ukraine has always been part of Mother Russia and so forth. How much of a role do you think history plays and a related question, perhaps, in some ways, is some sort of idea of geographic destiny or determinism. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think history um, often works to uh, solidify, if if you will, geopolitical scheming. Um, so it's it's no great surprise that history and geography actually get put to work often, um, you know, by highly populist, nationalistic leaderships that are determined, I think, to tell, particularly their domestic audiences, that, um, you know, territorial appropriation, spatial expansionism, the violent domination of place is actually perfectly legitimate. It is understandable. Um, and, you know, it's everybody else 
who's got history and geography wrong. So I think there is there is a, a very, very strong ideological commitment to a very particular form of history. Now, some of that history, of course, can take the sort of golden age uh, era of history, where you look back for evidence of past glories. But another kind of history that's very, very prevalent amongst states that feel territorially aggrieved or territorially incomplete is you tend to focus in on a particular moment. You know, you say, well, this is the moment where we were a victor, we were wronged. So, for example, in the case of Venezuela and Guyana, where Venezuela thinks two-thirds of Guyanese territory actually belongs to uh, Caracas as opposed to Georgetown, you know, they focus in on a treaty and say, well, this, this treaty was fundamentally unfair and it favoured, you know, the British colonial um, occupier. And in, in Ukraine's case, of course, it's often been caught up in the sort of competing calculations of European empires that are sort of waxed and waned. But of course, history also matters to Ukrainian senses of nationalism and national identity. You know, there'll, there'll be really very, very few, few Ukrainians who don't understand only too well the extraordinary impact that uh, famine played, for example, in the 1930s. And that was very much engineered by Stalin as part of the collectivization of agriculture. So when, you know, when historians like Timothy Schneider referred to the bloodlands uh, in his sort of extraordinary overview of places like Ukraine, it's really important to also recognize there are inevitably competing versions of history and ones that are deeply, deeply contested. So I, I think history is absolutely complicit in geopolitics. Perhaps uh, we can now zoom in a bit to the Arctic and also want to get to the Antarctic a little bit later on in this podcast. But not particularly close to where this war is being fought, but certainly this is going to change the equation in the Arctic. I know, Klaus, that you've been a, a supporter of the Arctic Council and endorsing it as a as a Nobel Peace Prize nominee for its role in upholding the liberal international order. Is that still viable? Well, I think I think let's start off with the basic geographical fact. You know, fifty percent of the terrestrial Arctic is Russia. And there's no question that when Mikhail Gorbachev famously came to Murmansk to deliver his, his talk in October 1987, where he spoke of the Arctic as a zone of peace, he patently saw Russia as integral to that vision of a zone of peace. So one of the comments I've made earlier for a, a media organization is that in, in many ways, Vladimir Putin has done his best to destroy that vision that Mikhail Gorbachev had for the Arctic as a kind of distinctly circumpolar region. Um, with you know considerable potential to put the the violent uh, militaristic Cold War era behind it, and I, and I think as we also understand well, one of the one of the defining features of the Arctic Council, one that I've long long admired, is the role of permanent participants uh, in helping to make this a very distinctive intergovernmental forum. So I think I think as as the Arctic Council members have I think rightly concluded. For the moment, Russia's uh, involvement in the Arctic Council is not is not possible, given given the circumstances. And I think what we what we sort of wait and watch is whether Russia, for example, walks away from the Arctic Council and and uses it as an opportunity to engage further with uh, strategic allies such as China and create a kind of 
rival organization that looks principally at the interests of the immense Russian North, or whether it's a, a waiting game, and we hope for a, a different kind of Russia to come in the post-Putin era, one where we can work with Russia again in some kind of order that takes seriously rules and, and norms. Um, but for now, what I think I would agree with many commentators who've, who've reflected on this, I think we're looking at a kind of a Nordic plus model where we will look, I think, particularly to the long track record of the Nordic countries uh, working together with one another on northern issues and where we'll continue, I hope, to find areas of convergence, such as environmental protection, sustainable development, scientific cooperation. But I think it's a tragedy, to be perfectly honest, that all the work that we've done with Russia, particularly around science diplomacy, um, has, has had to be cancelled for utterly understandable and necessary reasons. An organization that had just celebrated its 25th anniversary now, yeah, it seems like it seems a bit almost far-fetched to see that organization being functional, at least with the, with Russia's participation anytime in the months or years ahead. But this, this Nordic model or this Nordic cluster, perhaps, would you see that as being just a regional Northern European body or something that would also bring in the North American Arctic? Or how, do, how would you see that as perhaps picking up the slack? Yeah, so I think there are a number of dimensions to this. So number one is, of course, um, the most important work done by the Arctic Council was arguably through its working groups. So I think there's a real, um, a real question mark, again, over what impact it has in terms of lacking Russian participation. The good news is, of course, observer states have sought to contribute and support the work of the, the working groups itself. But again, I just repeat quickly that comment I made right at the start, 50% of the Arctic is Russia. And without Russian engagement, without Russian um, uh, you know, support, uh, access, for example, for foreign scientists to carry out essential uh, long-term you know, ecological monitoring, permafrost research, or whatever it might be, it looks, looks really precarious, if not impossible. Now, the other dimension worth saying and the, and the Ukraine crisis really reminds us of this, is that there's, in some ways, there's a kind of arc of crisis here. You know, we're looking at the Arctic, we're looking at the Baltic states, um, we're clearly looking at um, Eastern, Central Europe, but we're also looking to the Middle East as well, acknowledging, for example, conflicts like Syria. So I think one of the interesting um, areas for the Arctic Council minus Russia to think about is, first of all, continuing to engage and support the Baltic states, many of whom will be very much be on the front line in any kind of post-Ukraine era. But secondly, also to continue to work with um, North American um, allies as well in the Arctic. Some of that, of course, will have inevitable military security implications. After all, we're speaking at a time when um, exercise cold response is taking place in northern Norway. Um, but some of it, of course, involves continuing to support indigenous groups across the Arctic. So I think that's a real challenge for us. How do we support organizations like RAPON, for example, that have already in the past found themselves facing um, scrutiny from Moscow with regards to third-party involvement and support. It's not straightforward. You know, when you're dealing with a country as authoritarian as Russia is, and as violent as Russia is when it comes to, for example, domestic opposition. And one of the things authoritarian states always do is they always trample on civil society 
particularly elements of civil society that are reaching outwards, that are actually looking to hold on to solidarity and transnational connections. So we actually, we have to be very careful about that as well, that accidentally we might end up imperiling um, elements of Russian civil society, even if the motivation is, is utterly laudable or understandable. You made a, a time reference there, Klaus. So I just wanted to, for the listeners listening to this uh, tomorrow or next week or a month from now, uh, we're recording this because uh, it's a very fluid situation, of course. We're recording this interview right now on the 14th of March at around 5.30 uh, Central European time. But I want to talk about a couple of things. I, I like this idea of this arc of crisis. And you mentioned the Baltic states, the Baltic region, of course, not an Arctic region per se, but very relevant with several Arctic Council member states uh, bordering the Baltic, Sweden, Finland uh, being non-NATO countries at the moment. There's a lot of discussion here in Sweden and also in Finland about whether we should join NATO or not. And this brings me to uh, think about your book, Border Wars, once again, and the Baltic states as well, which are NATO members and also EU members. How do you see this this subset of the European North, of the Arctic and subarctic, within your lens of border wars? Is this a new zone of conflict? Yeah, well, I, 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 I would absolutely say watch that space incredibly closely. I think there are a couple of things we might reflect upon. For example, do we want to encourage um, Baltic states like Estonia to become observers to the Arctic Council, to, you know, to really actively encourage, to make sure that when we have applications from observer states, we act upon them, um, notwithstanding the fact, of course, that in the past, it was often difficult sometimes to secure observer status if all parties did not agree with one another. And it's worth bearing in mind, it's kind of an irony now, that uh, Russia was somewhat sceptical of China becoming an observer to the Arctic Council. Well, that changed, of course, after Crimea. Um, but I would think for the Nordic countries and the Baltics, this is going to be an exceptionally tense time. It's worth remembering that during the Cold War, we had thousands of British troops stationed in West Germany. It was the British Army on the Rhine. Well, my prediction is that British, American and other troops uh, will be spending increasingly large amounts of time in the Baltic states on a near permanent uh, basis now. Um, Finland and Sweden have, I think, as they already are, a great deal of soul searching to do in terms of what's best. But whatever these states do or don't do, uh, Russia will continue, I think, with um, cyber assaults. I think we will continue to have uh, a, a sort of you know, industrial scale assault of disinformation and anything that encourages um, societal schisms. I think it's pretty well known that uh, Putin was supportive of Brexit. So even the UK leaving the European Union has geopolitical consequences. And yet we've also seen the UK, I think, trying to reestablish for itself a role within the European security landscape as a major um, military actor. So I think I think it's no exaggeration to say that Europe is in flux. And I think the Baltic and Nordic countries are very much on the front line. I think it's just worth noting as a, as, a, as a sidebar that the Norwegian relationship with Russia, of course, is somewhat different. And I think one thing I, I would imagine Norway will be really looking to try and hold on to is as far as possible, some kind of working relationship with Norway, uh, sorry, with Russia, over areas of obvious common interests, such as the Barents Sea, and their shared land border. Well, that's going to be really difficult. But I think, again, the Norwegians are well used to walking that particular tightrope. It's a fascinating set of circumstances, obviously. I'd like to um, 
to zoom out once again and uh, talk about another one of these many aspects. One one area that you've done quite a bit of research on yourself is UNCLOS, the uh, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, and this extended continental shelf, which is very relevant in the Arctic, uh, Russia, Denmark, Norway, and others uh, making various claims, Canada. Do you see that process as being interrupted? Can that be compartmentalized in the midst of this this major crisis and conflict in Europe? I mean, again, I think I think actually, as as international lawyers who study um, the you know the, this process of mapping and establishing sovereign rights over extended continental shelves, have noted Russia has largely followed the rules of UNCLOS, particularly around um, key articles like Article seventy six. And actually, by following the rules and, and producing submissions for the UN Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf, Russia, Russia has come out well uh, through this process. And indeed, as, as, as listeners will probably appreciate, Canada, Denmark, via Greenland and Russia will have to have a, 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 a sort of trilateral conversation with one another in terms of where those sovereign rights begin and end around the central Arctic Ocean. Um, now, I would imagine uh, at the moment that kind of conversation, um, even if it was entirely clear where indeed all these judgments and recommendations will take the three parties, will be nigh on impossible. But I think from Russia's point of view, there's nothing to be gained by, by making conflict over such things. But then remember, some, some would say, well, what on earth was driving the invasion of Ukraine? It's a very, very risky intervention. So by comparison, the sovereign rights of the Central Arctic Ocean is neither here or there. Um, but of course, symbolically, it, there's no question, um, as former Prime Minister Stephen Harper recognised to Canada, you know, there was something, of course, that appealed to him as well, that Canada could say its sovereign rights extended all the way to the North Pole. Longer term, of course, the sovereign rights argument over the Central Arctic Ocean is important, but it really speaks to a wider issue, which is about Russia feeling secure in its Arctic territories and making sure that it is the Arctic power par excellence. And, and part that means also keeping China in its place, uh, because, of course, Russia is deeply concerned that the northern sea route remains a safe operating space, but also a profitable one, given the very ambitious targets it has for commercial uh, traffic going across um, the northern coastline of the Federation. I think the other thing to bear in mind as well is that Russia also entered into a Central Arctic Ocean Fisheries Agreement, and there are nine other parties, including the European Union and China uh, and, uh, for example, Korea. So I think one thing there to watch is, is whether these sorts of agreements pertinent to the Arctic continue to be honoured. So at the moment, there's no reason why they shouldn't be. But um, clearly, you know, a highly provocative act would be to send uh, ships into that particular space, even to carry out the most exploratory of fishing. You know, you could imagine there might be things that Russia might wish to do simply to make a point that if it wants to leave an agreement or if it wants to show those other parties that um, it's quite happy to uh, take undertake more dramatic action, then it will do so. So I think, I think part of the challenge is, is recognising outside of Russia that the things we hold dear aren't necessarily the things that Russia holds dear. And I think that would also, by the way, apply 
to the Antarctic Treaty system if we were looking at the other end of the Earth, so to say. Well, you're anticipating my, not my next, but my question after my next question, because <laughs> which we will get to the ATS, which obviously uh, must be affected by this this major disruption in the uh, geopolitical order. Uh, but before that, Klaus, um, you referenced uh, China a number of times here, and obviously the, the China's relationship with Russia's has attracted quite a bit of attention in recent years, but especially in the last few weeks, as China seems to be supporting the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And even uh, there's been reports just yesterday that Russia has reached out to China to help supply military hardware and, and other economic aid in support of this invasion. How do you see this? I mean, from, from this very wide angle look at geopolitics on the Eurasian landmass, but also around the world, how do you see the impacts of that relationship developing? Do you see a world that is maybe moving away from this liberal order to something more of blocks, of alliances, of iron curtains and such, and also disrupting this global trade system, which was predicated on open borders, at least for trade? How do you see this playing out uh, as we go forward? It seems like it could be a major story for the decades to come. I'm sure that's right. I mean, I, I think at the moment, um, what we what we're seeing is is really elements of deglobalization. So there is, I think, a, a kind of pushback um, against the the sort of uh, neoliberal globalized order that in the 1990s we thought was going to be simply exported uh, from Europe and North America and transplanted. Uh, to the rest of the world. And I think, you know, it's it's kind of amazing, you know, when you think back to 1989, the dissolution of the Berlin Wall, for example, but also it was the year of the Tiananmen Square massacre. You know, there was initially some optimism that a more democratic China um, might be possible. Um, I think what we're now seeing is actually uh, really rival blocks with distinct spheres of influence trying to create their own particular order, order projects. And we, we've, we're kind of seeing that, aren't we? I mean, when we're, for example, when there was talk about Russia being excluded from SWIFT, from the international um, banking system, then, you know, there was news stories about Russia then turning to China for help with the processing of international payments. Um, we've seen this, of course, through things like internets and digital infrastructure that actually China, Russia, the United States, European Union, increasingly operating their own systems. And of course, uh, you know, Russia and China have had a close um, strategic uh, relationship with one another. We shouldn't forget India in all of this as well. You know, Russia is very eager to get Indian investment in its oil and gas sector. Uh, Russia supplies a great deal of arms to India, for example. Well, some of that could become, uh, I think, harder to fulfill in the future, given the sanctions that Russia is going to be faced, which are going to be ever more intensive. So I think what we're looking at here is rival orders. I think we're looking at particular places um, attracting, frankly speaking, great power rivalries. And Ukraine, of course, is an important uh, has an important trading relationship with uh, China uh, in terms of particularly food. And so Ch China, I think, has found itself in this really awkward position, entirely of its own making, uh, not that I feel terribly sympathetic for Beijing, of wanting that relationship with Russia, wanting the oil and gas and other strategic minerals, but at the same time also not necessarily wanting to be locked out either of that Western system 
Uh, because after all, China and America's economic fortunes are deeply entangled with one another in a way that Russia and the United States are not. You mentioned the Antarctic and the Antarctic Treaty System, which certainly this will disrupt the very long, well-established uh, relationships in the Antarctic that have seemed to work for 60-plus years. Do you see that as, as something that's going to have to be reimagined and somehow rebuilt after this invasion in Ukraine? Well, I think I think the first thing to say is that the Antarctic Treaty System is a treaty-based organization. So it's really very different to the Arctic Council, um, which is, you know, based on a, uh, a declaration. And it's an intergovernmental forum as opposed to a treaty-based organization. So it's, I think it's also worth noting that Russia was one of the original signatories of the 1959 Antarctic Treaty. And last year, uh, Russia was really quite um, adamant that it was uh, a leading Antarctic player, not least because we were recognizing the 200th anniversary of the sighting of the Antarctic. And of course, von Bellinghausen is, is often cited by Russia as the key figure uh, that first sighted the polar continent. Russia, Russia has substantial interests in the Antarctic, and Russia has not been shy in speaking of the Antarctic's resource potential. Uh, and that includes uh, surveying and prospecting for Antarctic minerals. It's been very, very open about that. Also, in a, in a little noted information paper delivered, I think, at the ATCM in Beijing, pre-pandemic, pre I should note, uh, Russia circulated a sort of an analysis of the Antarctic Treaty System, speculating that it might be past its sell-by date and suggesting that actually it was time for a conversation about a new uh, governance system. At the same time, of course, Russia has and China have arguably been the most difficult countries to deal with when it comes to marine protected areas and the Southern Ocean as well. So this is a country that actually a little bit like uh, the earlier observation I made, is, is very good at positioning itself as a victim on the one hand, you know, always being victimized by a Western-led international order that is Russia-phobic, but at the same time also being pretty adept at exploiting uh, the very system that it says makes it into a victim. So I think part of Russia's misgivings about the marine protected areas are that you know, it worries about missing out. Or if, for example, it's hostile to the controlled fishing in the Southern Ocean, it's partly because it thinks it doesn't have the same kind of fishing fleet capability as other countries do. Um, but it's also perfectly capable of using the rule of consensus to block, to frustrate um, other areas that um, you know, a near majority, uh, a very large majority would wish uh, to to see happen, so I think I think we we probably do need to be very very watchful of Russian behaviour in the Antarctic. I don't think you can take for granted Russia's um, continued uh, uh, you know goodwill in inverted commas around the Antarctic Treaty System. Again, I think you just have to acknowledge that in the, both the Arctic and the Antarctic, we are dealing with a highly competitive strategic environment. And science alone is not going to save us. You know, we just have to kind of get away from thinking, particularly in the Antarctic, that if only we can use more science diplomacy, um, that will be the sort of the magic bullet. Um, there, there really are some very, very 
uh, I think, profound strategic interests here at stake. Something the Australians, for example, have been forced to recognise with uh, as they ponder, what on earth do you do when you claim 42% of the polar continent and Russia and China uh, have a great deal of their scientific infrastructure in your so-called sector? Well, the treaty says, of course, all those claims are put to one side for the sake of cooperation. But if cooperation suddenly looks a lot more fragile, then, of course, questions start to get asked about the future health of the treaty. And then what on earth happens if the treaty collapses or major parties like Russia and China simply walk away? Suddenly claimant states like Australia, the United Kingdom, Norway, Argentina, you know, must wonder uh, what on earth uh, that does to the future of their interest, let alone the continent as a whole. And of course, as, as we all know, uh, climate change and other such environmental drivers will continue regardless of the strategic posturing of all sides. Well, we thought that uh, 2020 was a year of, of major disruption, but perhaps 2022 will be the real, the real year, the 24th of February this year when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Do you see this, Klaus, as being now entering, do we, have we entered a new era of realpolitik? Is this that significant or is this something that will pass in a year, in two years, or is this something that's going to be a real watershed in geopolitics going forward? My, my instinct is this is a real watershed, um, but I think it's also been a long time in coming. So one of the things that uh, I remember when I've, I wrote the first edition of Geopolitics, a very short introduction, another book um, I penned in 2007, you know, I warned that the, the behavior of the United States in particular around the war on terror would have implications uh, not only for the Middle East, you know, in terms of what the invasion of Iraq might do long term. But I was more concerned about where great powers violate international legal norms. So for example, you know, if you if you carry out extraordinary rendition, if you execute deeply, deeply controversial invasions, um, then there is a real danger that others think, well, if if the United States is doing that, then why shouldn't we do that? And as we discovered, of course, is that other countries to, you know, declare their own wars on terror and use that to carry out all kinds of nefarious geopolitical aims. We also, of course, around 2007, about the same time, Putin started to make these very particular speeches where he talked about the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union as the geopolitical disaster, as I noted earlier. But also it was quite clear that the sort of the rhetoric, the mood music was changing and that it became more and more apparent Russia was determined to uh, seek great power status once again, that it was no longer prepared to be considered or framed as this kind of basket case from the post-Yeltsin era. So I don't think, uh, you know, if we, if we think about this and the last 20, 20 odd years, we can say that the invasion of Ukraine, although shocking, is a complete surprise because after all, from 2014 onwards, he, uh, we might argue, Ukraine has been the victim of Russian aggression. What's changed, I think, is, is it's been violently escalated. And of course, our response, patchy in places, is nonetheless, I think, something so fundamentally different uh, to what we've seen in the recent past. And what that's done, I think, is to expose the fault lines that unquestionably exist within our current 
global economic and political order. So I think I think I think I'm, I agree with you. I think it's very difficult not to see this as a watershed moment, and I think it is quite likely that we are going to see more fragmentation with uh, I hate to say this terrific costs um, to all of us, albeit in very very uneven ways. Professor Klaus Dodds, we're very happy to have you to turn to, to to provide us with this really uh, 360 insight, uh, looking at the details of the polar regions and the, and the more grand geopolitical level as well to help us understand this current moment so close. Thanks once again for joining us for the fourth time here on the Polar Geopolitics Podcast, and we'd absolutely love to have you back as we continue to cover these events in Eurasia and the Arctic regions and beyond. Thanks again for the kind invitation.